this wonderful, wonderful, beautiful and intelligent woman. This is a woman who is in the world of finance and venture capital. That in and of itself is a rarity, as we all know. Okay, you might not know, but now you do know. She has to play with the big boys, I'll say that way. So she's got a lot of different insight that she'll be giving us. Actually, you'll hear a little bit more about her and her relationship, because remember, it's power partnerships. Her relationship with the next woman who is coming out, and we've got Dolly Singh, come on out. Hey. <laughs> All right. For a more powerful you. So here's what I'm gonna do, because you know, you're fashion. So there's no way you could be in fashion uh -oh. and not have the tape on your mic not showing. Uh -oh. Here, it's not you. It's perfect. See, you're like, see? Okay, why did I have to do that whole thing? Because Dolly is in fashion, but beyond fashion, Dolly is in tech. And she's gonna tell you all about her tech-enabled fashion footwear line called Thesis Couture. Now, Dolly, oh, she's worked with the likes of Elon Musk and such, and you know, she'll tell you all about that. Dolly, Carmen, we're ready to talk about power moves for a more powerful you, and we're starting right here, right now with all of us. So please, come on, let's take a seat. Before we move on to even your relationship with Carmen and how you all met and funding and all those other good things, tell them about the, hot, the heels. Tell them about the product. Uh, absolutely. Um, so Thesis Couture is a fashion tech brand, and basically what we're trying to do is combine engineering and fashion as it relates to footwear for women. So when you're wearing high heels, you know, your body's doing all the work because you're basically just being propped up on your toes. So you're, all of your body weight is pitch-loaded on the balls of your feet. Your heel bone is a big, strong bone. It was designed to carry your body weight. Um, your toe bones are like the size of the tip of your pinky. So they're not, they didn't sign up for that job, right? <laughs> So putting high heels on is really kind of like the opposite of what we were anatomically designed to do. So the next step was, okay, if there's a design uh, opportunity for improvement, why hasn't somebody else already done this? Because there were clearly lots of people in the footwear industry that were making lots of money. But when you look at the industry, you find that design houses, all of the companies that you guys think make shoes, Gucci, Prada, Dior, Jimmy Choo, Steve Madden, Nine West, right? None of them actually make shoes. They make sketches of shoes. Those sketches go to a factory, and the factory makes this product and sends it back to the design house. They iterate, and then that's how then products are eventually branded and come to market. But what's missing in that equation, right? You have artists, which are designers, and you have craftsmen, right? People on the factory floor. But there's a $40 billion ecosystem with no engineers. That seems insane in, you know, 2018. So that's kind of how it all started, was I felt like all I had to do was interject some engineering and maybe something good would happen. Um, and because I'd built a strong network in engineering, I felt like I was uniquely equipped to you know, bring a level of talent to the problem that normally wouldn't look at the problem. Because let's say you were Nike, which is like the world's leading footwear company. Mm -hmm. If you called Garrett and Hans and said, hey, we need your help making a shoe, they probably would have been like, well, we're kind of busy making rockets and trying to go to Mars, so can't help you. But because I had a personal relationship with them, they were willing to they were willing to do things that they might not have done. So that was kind of how it all started. So then, Carmen, tell us about your relationship to Dolly and how you found her, how you all interacted, engaged, and then even funding and things of that sort. So I'm a venture capitalist, and I'm out there looking for billion-dollar opportunities. I went to a Harvard 
entrepreneurship event, and in the corner was a pop-up for Thesis Couture. Um, I'd gotten to this event on the Metro. I was wearing my flip-flops, and <laughs> as soon as I got a block in, away from the event, I put on my shoes. Exactly. <laughs> we, we all understand, though. Okay. Uh, yes. A number of us understand that. So <laughs> I, I did that um, because my shoes were beautiful but incredibly uncomfortable. And so when I went into the event, I made my rounds, networking, and I saw Thesis Couture, and I was really curious about what they, the promise was, you know, comfortable stilettos. No way, I thought in my mind. So I put them on, and I was in love. I am, I'm a runner, and so I always tell Dolly that, you know, I care a lot about, you know, being comfortable, which is why I wear my flip-flops places and then put the uncomfortable shoes on at the minute I need to. Um, so I tried the shoes on, was totally convinced and sold on the, the comfort and the transformation and started hunting Dolly down. <laughs> so I reached out to her on LinkedIn and was like, I want a conversation with you. Um, we spoke. I was incredibly impressed by her vision and her strategy. What she's trying to do is transform an industry, not, not an incremental change, but a complete transformation. And to me, that represents a billion-dollar opportunity. So what was it about venture capital specifically that drew you to it? What drew me to it was the, the power to create wealth. Um, I am a big believer that if there is going to be change in my community, in the Latinx community, then folks in my community need to build wealth and they need to get power. And venture capital is an awesome way to do that. You know, I always tell the SNAP story because there was, there's a church in Palo Alto that put $15,000 into SNAP and ended up making $24 million. That's just one example of the potential of venture capital and startup investing. So what is a move you made that you did not know at the time was going to be a power move, but turned into a power move? So when I joined SpaceX, I had left, I was shutting down my book of business. So I'd spent six years building an executive search firm. It was a small operation. It was a nice lifestyle business. I had three kids, worked from home. So it was, you know, kind of a cushy situation. And similar to Carmen, I was pretty comfortable. I could have done that literally for the next 25 years and been fine. Um, but I was like kind of hungry for something that made me uncomfortable, right? When that made me not sure I could do it. And so when I interviewed at SpaceX, I was offered a startup salary and equity. And at the time, I didn't even know what equity was, right? So I'm looking at my current compensation, which is here, and then my offer, which was here. And I'm like, this makes no sense. But I was so enamored what they were doing. Elon explained to me how equity works and that, yes, it's a gamble. But if we end up on the right side of this thing, you're going to end up 20x ahead of where you thought you were going to be, right? And so I said, okay, let's jump. So, you know, we were, when I joined, uh, we were like six weeks away from running out of capital. Oh. We had just blown up our second rocket. And I think. <laughs> Literally. 
Literally, <laughs> li right, literally. Um, so like our hardware was falling out of the sky, we're running out of money. The story in the LA Times, it's not the Elon Musk people think of today, right? At the time they were comparing him to Jim Jones right. and everybody that was working for him was like committing career suicide by drinking the Kool-Aid, right? So it was like all the logical signs said this is insane, mm -hmm. but it was something that was moving and exciting and scary. And so I was like, let's give it a whirl. And it turned out to be one of the smartest, probably the smartest thing that I've ever done. Well, this is a perfect time to open up the floor to questions. Hi. Um, I was wondering if, uh, just because I work, I've always worked with people who don't look like me. I'm usually like the only person that looks like me. I'm the only girl, I'm the only black person. I'm only, I'm usually like alone in that. And I was wondering if your support systems or like the people you confer with or talk with look like you or if they look like, I mean, everyone's conventional, like the idea of like your boss, like, like someone who doesn't look like you. And if you think it would be more beneficial to have people who look like you and identify with, you know, who you are and, and around you, giving you advice and how to move forward. Because I always wanted to have someone to mentor me who looks like me. So I feel like I always benefit more from that. Mm. So what do your support groups look like? And do you think that you would get more out of it if they did look like you? So I was at Dimensional for 15 years before they decided to move headquarters. And I did look around and I said, whoa, <laughs> I need to really get into networking because I'm not gonna move and I need to figure out what my next job is. And I did reflect on my network there. I didn't have any professional Latino, Latina friends at all. Um, and so I joined, joined an organization called Alpha. And that organization is a national organization and it supports Latinx folks in finance and leadership. And it was extremely helpful because it was a safe zone for me. I didn't have experience talking in public. I didn't have experience um, selling to corporates. And through this organization, I took on leadership positions. I became the chapter president of the LA chapter. And I was given that ability to speak on stage to thousands of people, to, um, to sell sponsorships to you know, Coca-Cola and Target. And so, yeah, I think it's definitely um, a benefit to surround yourself with peers. In venture capital now, I'm a part of um, women in venture groups. Um, I started a poker night because um, I would go to events and all the male VCs would talk about how fun it was to, um, you know, um, play poker together. They would talk about the night before and how cool it was. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I want to play. <laughs> and I didn't uh, have that network of friends. So I started a, a women in tech poker night. And I got it sponsored, and I do it a few times a year, and it's amazing. I lose my money consistently. <laughs> <laughs> to charity. Yeah, to charity. For a good cause. <laughs> yes. For a good cause. I had beginner's luck, like, the first time, and then ever since then, <laughs> I'm just getting, cra getting creamed. But, I mean, my two cents is I think you have to do both, right? Like, there are things where I can talk to Carmen about it because she is a brown woman, will be, and a brown woman who's facing fundraising can relate in a way that somebody else can't. But if I didn't have like 
Caucasian male friends that are like, you know, came from wealth. I didn't come from, I'm a first generation immigrant, right? Like my family didn't come here with money. Um, so I never really knew wealthy people, but, you know, when I was growing up. But if I hadn't had the comfort during my professional career to reach out to some of them, like then I wouldn't have as robust a network as I have now. So you don't want everybody in your network to look like you. You actually want as many people that are as different from you as possible, but you definitely want some people that can understand where you're coming from, especially as an entrepreneur or business owner. Nobody understands it unless they've done it. So if you are an entrepreneur, you need other entrepreneurs in your support system. Otherwise, like your mental health will definitely suffer, right? So I have a strong family. I have a great husband. I'm able to like, you know, like let off whatever steam. If I need to cry, I have somebody to cry to, right? So you need that, um, but don't limit yourself to just what you're comfortable with, right? That was a great question, by the way. Yeah. Anyone else? Hi. So Carmen had uh, mentioned that you have a certain strategy before you walk into a meeting to bypass the idea of what you actually look like. And, you know, people have a certain perception of you by the way you look. I'm in fitness, they look at me, they think I might want to kick someone's butt <laughs> for 60 minutes, and that's not me. So I, both of you, I'm sure, have the similar strategies or different strategies as what, what tactics do you use and what type of strategies do you use before you walk into that meeting so people who talk to you know um, what you're really truly about, not what just you look like? I mean... I've never, I'm kind of a loud mouth, so I really don't overanalyze, right? So um, I did find, though, that in tech, even though it was male-dominated, like, I used my voice as a woman, you know, very assertively. And I was able to sometimes have conversations and use my empathy or some of my communication skills in a way that my male colleagues might not be able to. So I always used what somebody might consider a weakness to my own advantage to whatever extent I could, right? Um, it is, you know, genuinely much more difficult. Like, statistically, 3% of venture capital goes to women. So you can't avoid it, I guess, right? But I think the best you can do is have an understanding of your audience, right? So any meeting, the homework that I usually do and, like, the best, you know, takeaway is I, like, really, really obsessively stalk the person that I'm meeting with so I can understand what motivates them, what's their trigger, right? Because if I understand where their levers are, then I can position my pitch in a way that it's gonna like impact them, right? Because you could make one pitch to one person one way and it doesn't matter, but if it's the same product but you kind of hit a nerve to something that matters to them, then they might listen to it, right? So the best thing that I try to do is be specific in my intentions before meetings. So know what it is that I want coming out of the meeting and research the person that I'm meeting with to the greatest extent possible so I can figure out where I can find a win-win for them and me. Similar to what Carmen was saying earlier, like, what do I have to offer, right? So those are probably my best pre-meeting prep tricks. Any other questions? We have time for probably one more. So for you as an entrepreneur, because I'm an entrepreneur, was it worth it getting the investor? Mm. And for the investor part, was it worth it going into her business? And if so, how long is your contracts? And what is the percentage? Well, a lot of questions. Um, so for me, 
Was it worth it? Um, absolutely. I wouldn't have gotten to the point where I did if it wasn't for my investors. They've all been tremendously kind and patient. So I'm super thankful for that. Um, but because you know, I was lucky enough that with the wrong people, it didn't work out, right? So the investors that we ended up getting, because it is like the less likely deal, quite frankly, are people that genuinely either cared about me and believed in me or cared about the business. So I'm super thankful for all of the people that have invested in us. Um, and, you know, I think terms of the deal always depends on any business. For us, our first valuation we raised on a $10 million valuation, which was really high for our startup and was really hard for me to get people excited about. So I made the barrier more difficult than I needed to, quite frankly. But like I said, you know, you kind of you go and you learn. Um, so I think from my perspective, whatever percentage is less important than is that person going to add value, right? So Carmen and another investor might have invested the same amount, but she adds a lot of value. So quite frankly, I wouldn't care how much you know, the percentage was for her per se, right? So I think the focus should be on finding people that you have a good relationship with. If you do, then they're going to be as interested in you are as giving you a fair deal, right? Because it doesn't make any sense for the investor to try to like lowball you if they actually care about your business. Investors that are trying to lowball you are probably not the best people to bring into your business. I don't know if that answers your question, but. And, and for me, it is a power move because um, the fact of the matter is that we're just, my partners and I are getting started. So we have a small fund. Our checks, our investment size is small relative to other funds. So I really, every time I speak to uh, an entrepreneur, I have to say, like, here is how we can help you. Here's the resources we have. So it's, it's definitely like I try and help our companies get to the next level. It's always asking, like, what's your biggest challenge? How can I help you? And in doing so, then I'm able to get into these investments. And I don't, don't regret any of them so far. I think the, the money should be like the, the least valuable thing your investor gives you in an ideal scenario, right? Because money you can get theoretically from anybody, right? One person's check is as good as a different person's check. But if that check comes with energy and intention and excitement, right? Carmen evangelizes for us. She goes places and tells people how awesome we are. That's much more valuable than the money alone. I'm here because she introduced me to Kwanzaa, right? So. That's where the real value comes from, if they're passionate about what you're doing. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, give a round of applause to both Carmen and Dolly. Thank you both so much. This was wonderful. Come and meet me at the summit.